Hello and welcome to the second episode of Football Insider's podcast show, The Inside Track. I'm your host, Lewis Pears, and with me today, I'm joined by Football Insider editor Wayne Veazey and former England, Tottenham, Leeds and Blackburn goalkeeper, Paul Robinson. In today's show, we have some big news from our experts on Everton's point deduction, what really happened in the courtroom when owner Farad Mashiri went in alone, and whether Manchester City and Chelsea fans could be hit with disaster of their own when it comes to devastating point deductions and potentially even relegation. Alongside this, you'll hear exclusively from Kieran Maguire on Chelsea's likely punishment and insider news from Paul, who was managed by Sean Dyche for many years, on how the Everton players have reacted to the news and what is happening behind the scenes at the Finch Farm training ground. We'll have updates on the Premier League loan ban vote, exclusive Tottenham transfer news, as well as building up to the mouth-watering Saturday lunchtime clash between Man City and Liverpool at the Etihad, including all the controversy surrounding the early kickoff and who really is at fault for Jurgen Klopp's side landing the doom they slot yet again. To wrap up the episode, we have a special Man City and Liverpool combined 11, which turned into absolute chaos with some shock selections. Before we jump in, I'd really appreciate it if you hit that subscribe button or follow whichever platform you're listening on. And if you like what you hear, make sure to give this pod a top review and rating. This enables us to produce the very best possible show. Let's get straight into the episode. Wayne, to start with, of course, the big news over the weekend, please. Can you set the scene for us as to what's happened with Everton Football Club on Friday, this point deduction? Yeah, I mean, the the Premier League um, have have given Everton the biggest punishment in Premier League history, 10-point deduction for breaching their financial rules across a three-season period. Um, Basically, it boils down to about £19 that Everton overspent in the in the Premier League's view and that were outside of the rules. The Premier League say Everton sort of have been briefing the media that Everton were given loads of opportunity to operate within the rules and they were warned many, many times that they were sort of skirting close to them and in serious danger. Um, and their view is that Everton sort of continued to spend big, to continue to... Um, make massive outlays on sort of transfers over that over that period and um an independent commission has found them guilty of overspending and they've been absolutely um you know collared at a level that no other Premier League has, club has before 10 point deduction um sent shockwaves across the Premier League I mean a lot of people were kind of saying Everton should be punished or any Premier League club who's breached rules so clearly should be punished, but for the Premier League to actually do so, um, that's that's what's caused the surprise. Um, fines mean nothing, not to billionaires and to hedge funds and to private equity groups, and the Premier League have hit clubs where it hurts them the most, and that is points in the table. And, um, you know, it's not, it's not an overstatement to say this is one of the biggest Premier League stories ever because not only of the ramifications for Everton but the ramifications for the other Premier League clubs um, who might be deemed to have um, also breached financial rules. And if we look at this, Paul, you know, this was actually ruled for the 2021-22 season across that previous three-year window. It's quite fair to say, isn't it? It's really embarrassing it's taken this long to actually finally get round to giving a points deduction for Everton. Yeah, well, that's what I was going to ask Wayne. I mean, Wayne's a lot closer to it than we are. What you just said there, Wayne, and explained it. Do you think a lot of this is because that new rule was brought in in September 
about the speed of the penalties or whatever it is. The, was it the FA or the Premier League brought in a new rule that they that the clubs have to be punished quicker or that sanctions have to be or there's a, a resolve of an issue quicker? Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, they they did introduce it in September and. Um, that has come from other Premier League clubs who are pushing for swift punishments. Um, and, um, you know, interestingly, Liverpool are among those who have sort of behind the scenes have been pushing for swift punishments. You know, those clubs like Liverpool and Arsenal who operate sort of self-sustainably, um, they they sort of have been amazed that a club like Everton were allowed to get away with it for so long. And that's why that rule was introduced. And I think that's going to have... Um, huge ramifications, um, obviously has had for Everton already, but also for other clubs. I mean, one thing that's worth emphasising is that Everton will appeal and have already said publicly that they're planning to appeal. And my understanding is that they are confident the points deduction will be reduced on appeal. At the moment, it's 10 points. Everton are confident, from what I'm told, and this is from... Um, you know, sort of senior sources at the club that could be reduced to between three and six points, which would still be a huge amount if Everton were successful in winning that, but um, would obviously be, you know, a big difference to 10 points, which is only sort of one bad run of results away from putting the club in the mother of all relegation battles. But Wayne, don't you think that if you, if you, you know, if you give a point deduction, that should be it. I mean, it feels a bit ridiculous. You give 10 and you go, oh, the club have appealed. So actually, let's let's give three back. You know, there you go. You're out up to seven. Do you think that's a bit silly? Or actually, do you think that is fair for Everton to have the choice to appeal and then points to be given back? Um, I think I think it's a really good point you're making. Uh, I mean, in in English law, whether it's sporting law or, the, or any course of law, you have opportunity to appeal. So that's kind of um, sort of firmly established process what what is quite interesting is that i think there were that 40,000 pieces of paperwork for this so the sort of the level of detail required is absolutely enormous that the independent commission heard and the, obviously we'll talk a bit about the man city case later but they have got 115 charges so you can only imagine how much paperwork there is for that so to then hear that appeal again that's going to be really interesting i mean another thing i was heard is that Fahad Mashiri represented Everton himself at the hearing. And wow. one thing that hasn't come out is that, um, you know, a few former Everton board members, um, Denise Baxendale, the former secretary, and Keith Wyner's former chief executive, have subsequently left the club. They both offered to appear at the hearing, represent Everton, and Mashiri turned them down. He rejected their offer. He insisted upon representing the club himself. And apparently um, he got absolutely slaughtered by the independent commission. Um, that sort of, Everton trying to keep that under wraps, but Mashiri um, did not come across well from what I'm heard. And had Baxendale and Wyness represented Everton, um, they might very well not have been landed with a 10-point deduction. I think a wow. lot of people were surprised, really, but the, at the speed of it, at the point, at the size of the points deduction as well. I think there's a lot to do with the independent regulator that's hanging over the potential, yeah. potential coming into football as well. So football needed to prove that it can govern itself, if you like. I think there's an element of that coming in. But I think from Everton's point of view as well, I think they've worked closely with the Premier League over a number of months now. I mean, this isn't this hasn't been cloak and dagger. This hasn't been hidden. They've been quite open about this talking in negotiations with the Premier League. And I think Everton feel a little bit hard done to because they have been open. They have worked with the Premier League. 
they've left the case. And then all of a sudden, Everton have turned around and gone, right, you're having, uh, sorry, the Premier League have said, you're having a 10-point deduction. <laughs> Given all that, I think that, like, like Wayne says, I, I, I thoroughly expect there to be an appeal. Um, you look at the previous points deductions, what Portsmouth got for going into administration years ago. I mean, this, 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 this is huge. It's a massive points deduction. On the football side of things, though, I think if there's any season you're going to get 10 points, this is the one to do it because I think the bottom half of the Premier League is the weakest it's ever been. And I think with Sean Dyche, with the way that Everton are playing, even with 10 points, which I, like Wayne, agree, I think it will be reduced to either three or six. Even with 10, I think they'll still stay up this year. That's the thing, isn't it? All the memes have come out about Sean Dyche and um, only going to relegation-threatened clubs that actually he had to go to Everton who were going to go through this this process. Paul, from a player's perspective, you know, you, you've started the season okay. You know, Everton are starting to get a form, a bit of an identity under Sean Dyche now. And as you said, bam, this happens, 10-point deduction. How will that affect players' morale? Or actually, do you think players will have known behind the scenes this has been coming for quite a while? No, I don't think players will have been aware. I mean, I think it will have come as, as a shock to as it did to all of us. We've, we've all known about the, the gross misspending at Everton, the way that money's been spent on players, the, the losses that they've sustained over the years and how it's not worked with the spending that they've had. We've all been aware of that, but I don't think we all knew how quickly this points deduction could have potentially come. Um, and from a player's point of view, they will certainly not have found anything out inside the dressing room quicker than what we were privy to. Um, but you, you see already, I mean, you listen on, on different media outlets they're talking about making Goodison Park a bear pit. You know, the, the, the atmosphere with the crowd. We saw that last season. We saw it the season before last when, when they stayed in the Premier League. They've, they've got the ability to do that, the, the Everton supporters. And I think with Sean Dyche at the helm there in the dressing room, he will certainly use it to, to his advantage. I mean, for him now, it all of a sudden, I hate the words, but it all of a sudden becomes a free hit for him. I mean, he's got a free hit to keep Everton in the Premier League with probably the best squad that he's had under the financial restraints that the club are now in. And he will close the door, he will keep things in-house and it will become an us against them. It's us against everybody else. The Premier League have done, to, done this to us. There's other teams in the Premier League. We will stick together, we will be strong and it will be an us against them mentality for them. And it will almost work in their favour because if Everton do stay in the Premier League this year, it will be probably his biggest managerial success. Absolutely. I mean, Paul, you know Sean Dyche very, very well because obviously you played under him at Burnley for for many years. Um, behind the scenes, is he the type of manager that players really warm to? Because obviously we only see one face of him in the media, the, the one he presents to the world. I mean, behind the scenes, what are Everton, what will the Everton players sort of be experiencing? And will it be very different to what to what we see as, as observers? I think most, every manager is very good at that, Wayne. I think every manager has their press face, if you like. It's yeah. very rare, apart from Ange Postacoglu, who's been a breath of fresh air this year, yeah. where managers sit in front of the press and you actually get to see a true personality, a true person. But I think, Sean, to his credit, he does give you a little bit of that. I think you do see a true person. And I think you see a lot of reality from him um, because that's what he is. He's a genuine, honest man. I always worked well with good man managers, whether they liked you or not, whether they were going to play you or not, mm. honestly. The hardest trait for any manager is to be honest, because when, you know, in, in any line of business, if somebody's not working to their full extent, you're going to sack them or you're going to get rid of them. It's a difficult conversation to have, but you want to be told. You want to be told up front if your face doesn't fit. And Sean was like that, whether you like it or not. He's very, very meticulous. He's very stringent in his planning on a daily basis. And players will warm to him. And this type of situation, he will really, really relish. I mean, he's, like you say, that the relegation battle he's always had at Burnley. He's always worked with a small budget. Um, he's always 
being the little fish in the big pond, if you like, the one that's always tried to disrupt the, the hierarchy of football. He's found a way. You know, he, he didn't necessarily, he didn't call it long ball, call it direct passes. And when Man, when Man City turn up to Burnley, Burnley are not going to pass them off the park. I mean, we've seen it this season. Vincent Company's tried it to, to a certain extent. The way that they've played, they've been open, they've been exposed. Going to Turf Moor now is not what it was like under Sean Dyche. They would find a way. He would find a way for his players to be disruptive and he would get players playing for him. His man management is excellent. And a, a situation like this, he will absolutely thrive and it's made for him. He will have conversations behind closed doors with players. They'll be having meetings. It'll be an almost us and them in the club as well. He's He'll detach himself and the playing staff away from what's happening over there because that's to do with the board. That's to do with the, the, the owners of the club. There's nothing we can do as a collective. We have to prove everybody wrong and do what we can on the pitch. And I really do. And I think this will, will play into his hands perfectly. And of all the times for United to be going to Goodison Park, of course, it had to be this weekend, didn't it? After everything that's just happened to them. Wayne, do you think, uh, you know, there was some talk that Burnley and Leicester might then push for financial compensa- compensation through this independent panel. Is that likely to happen? Do you think there's any legs in that or do you think that's not going to happen? Um, I do think that there are legs in that. Um, there's Leicester, there's Burnley, there's Southampton, Leeds United. They were, they were relegated from the Premier League during this period. And um, the combined um, sort of legal bill, they were they, they could push for up to 200 million between them um, in terms of compensation from Everton. So this is monumental. There's so many um, different strands to it. There's so many areas where... Um, you know, for for the for the media to report on, but also for Everton to be concerned about, and for for other clubs to be looking at as well, because they've been quite open. Those clubs have been were relegated during these seasons about how they were affected and how you know it was distorted by Everton's spending or overspending, um, as the Premier League have made clear what they actually did, and um, it, it it is. It is massive. It's a massive story. It's going to it's going to run and run. And uh, and I'd, I'd expect them to take those clubs to take that action. And um, you know this 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 story is far from over. And I don't think it's over when the appeal finishes either. No, I don't think it's over in that sense either. For other clubs, Wayne, if we if we talk about. Manchester City and their alleged 115 charges. I mean, where on earth do you begin with this? It took this long to work out what was going on with Everton. How how does this independent panel start with Manchester City? Yeah, I mean, the reason it's taking longer is because it covers a much longer period. It covers nine years and it's... Um, you know, financial management, it's managers remunerations. Um, in some of the charges are like Roberto Mancini being paid by um, a, a Qatari-owned Qatari-owned um, company um, as part of his salary, as, as a consultant on top of his actual Man City salary that went through the Man City books. There's so many, so much paperwork to consider. And as I said earlier, if there's 40,000 um, 40, pieces of paper for the Everton case, you know, you could um, times that by many times, multiple times for Man City. It's absolutely enormous. And you almost feel... Um, you almost feel for the kind of independent commission that, that includes um, former West Ham finance director, doesn't it? So there's people who are obviously very well versed in this world and who operate in it and they've got incredible attention to detail, but it is absolutely monumental. Man City's stance that they're briefing to the media is that they're very, very confident about their case and that they think they haven't broken these rules and they are not guilty of these 115 charges. They, they, they are 
so so confident over it and obviously um that that that, that remains to be seen one big issue is that it might take up to two years before the cases is heard and finalised. Um, clubs such as Liverpool and Man United, um, from what I'm told, are are very much looking for the pro- whole process to be concluded much quicker, um, and ideally this season. But that that looks unlikely, boarding or impossible, um, given the scale of it. But yeah, it's 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 monumental. Man City fans, I you know, I think have every right to be concerned. The club are saying they're not concerned, but maybe they should be concerned. I think that the charges, I mean, they've got to be, haven't they? And I think from from what I understand, they've employed some high-powered lawyers in the world, yeah. haven't they? They've they've gone to the very top table, and they're yeah. paying a huge price in lawyers' fees to yeah. basically keep kicking this can down the road. Yeah, this is- and that, that's that's really interesting because you know Everton represented by Mashiri, who's you know shown over the sort of period of time in charge of Everton that um, his judgment is massively flawed and that he's not um, a shrewd football business operator. I mean, you wouldn't want Mashiri representing your club in a in a hearing in front of three finance experts. Apparently he was torn to shreds and Man City will operate in a very different way throughout the whole um, Shape Mansour era. They've, all, they've always been such a well-run club, you know, from Kaldi Mubarak at the top, all the way through the hierarchy, um, you know they're, they're they're very very skilled. You can see how they deal, with, how the other clubs run the commercial deals, how that's absolutely transformed over the last decade and a bit. Transfers, you know, there's no club in world football who are more consistently successful in that area, um, and they're operating on different different le- levels to Everton, and they will not have someone like Mashiri representing the club, and that's why I think Manchester fans can be more confident than Everton fans. Yes, John Aldridge actually said that Man City and Chelsea effectively scared off investigators because of their financial power, whereas Everton were a bit like a fish out of water. Do you agree with that? Do you think really that Everton could be regarded as the scapegoat in this situation and that Chelsea, I mean, like you've said, when it sounds like Man City are going to be much more prepared than Everton are going to be, but actually they've still still got to be some concern because it's 115 charges we're talking about. It's not like we're talking about four or five here. Yeah, I mean, the, the what 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 is interesting is the Premier League has shown for the first time that it's willing to bare its teeth and you know really dig it into one of its member clubs which we've never seen before for something like this and that that is where the trepidation will come from other clubs I mean I I totally agree with you that it's not right that it's it's not right that it's the quality of your lawyer or your lawyer team or the scale of their sort of um defense should affect the outcome but that's how law that's how court works that's how law i mean i i used to sit in enough magistrates courts as a junior reporter and it's always about the quality of of your defense when you when you're in any case and i think that's exactly what it will come down to i think man city and chelsea will be far better represented than that oh, everyone's just letting down weren't they? yeah, yeah. <laughs> absolutely i mean i think i think it's it's it, what's so interesting is is you know that Man City have just been emerged as the world's most powerful football club, haven't they? Effectively, mm. I mean, maybe Real Madrid are more glamorous, but I mean, Man City favourites to win the Champions League this season. They'll be the favourites to win it next season. They are the team to be, the club to be, and they've almost not Real Madrid. They don't have that sort of prestige and history, but they certainly have got everything else. And I mean, I think a lot of clubs 
a lot of rival fans really want them to be knocked off their perch and don't like it when they hear, oh, we've got the best lawyers, even if it's come from private briefings rather than sort of public quotes or public comments. They don't they, they don't like that. And I think a lot of them will be watching this and really hoping that um, that Man City's defence off the pitch isn't quite as strong as it is on it. And um, what about Chelsea then? Because football insider expert Kieran Maguire said that a points deduction is also only fair if Chelsea are breached of FFP regulations. You have you have to punish the offence, and we, we have under UK law what's known as the veil of incorporation, which means that a company is separate from its owners. So therefore, it would be the company it would be Chelsea FC PLC yeah. or what was Chelsea FC PLC that would be prosecuted, and not Roman Abramovich or Todd Bowley. Um, if, if a points deduction is to be applied, then then that has to be the, the sanction. Now, we saw a few years ago their transfer ban. What has to happen for them? What do these two clubs, if, it, if of course, this does all come to fruition they, and they do get sanctioned, is it a 20-point bind? Is it an instant relegation? How do we solve this generally for the Premier League to uphold reputation? Well, listen, I mean, they've set a precedence that, like Wayne says, they've bared their teeth now. This, this isn't going away. You know, we're, we're talking today about Everton. This is as big, if not bigger, than when VAR came into the game. This is going to be disruptive because they've opened a can of worms. You know, they've, they've, they've gone to Everton. They've done Everton for 10 points for one charge. We talked there about Man City over 100. Chelsea, let's bear in mind, haven't been charged yet, but will are being investigated, aren't they? And yeah. you look at this, the state of that club and Todd Bowley's come out and he said, you know, why should we be charged for previous regimes? I mean, you know, under Roman Abramovich, because they will look back at that regime and he feels it's unfair that he shouldn't be Dealt a, a you know, that, I mean, that is a ridiculous defence from Absolutely. Bailey, isn't it? I mean, it's, he's, they've bought the club. They've bought yeah. the club. You know, I think there's a business term, isn't there? Veil of incorporation. You know, if you're the company owner, you represent the company or the board, mm. the board of directors, then you're responsible. So, I mean, that is that is hilarious. I mean, I think Bowley, with his public comments, um, he's probably another one you wouldn't want representing your club in front of a sort of a finance commission or independent commission um so whether he whether he would be i i i'm not sure but selfie of chelsea have self-reported themselves haven't they and presumably because they want the fine to be um reduced as a result and i think they've i think they've offered a 10 million pound payment um as a result of this but you know it could be a lot lost worse and and lewis i think you're just to take your point on how big could the penalty be i mean the premier league have been briefing that could be up to 30 points um you know should all charges be proved and then that's that's a relegation scenario for chelsea not for man city um but but for for chelsea i mean then then even if you go further than that you're looking at titles being take you know removed and all and you know previous sort of historical successes um which yeah, is, what's your you know, take on that i don't like that i mean no, of history you can't take away i mean the, the the immediate thing that springs to mind is the aguero goal absolutely oh, that's, that's, a, that's a magic moment yeah you yeah. can't take that away can you I mean they put if the, if the club is guilty you put sanctions on them now you find them you do the points deduction in line with whatever else you've done to other clubs but when you start going back and how, I mean, how far back do you go? I don't like it. I don't know what you guys think. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I mean, you're looking yeah. 14 years of ownership from Sheikh Mansour. I mean, Man City, you know, legitimately won those titles on the pitch. Yeah. And I think I think they should be, those punishments should be for 
for the future. Um, yeah, and if you're going to whack them, if they're found guilty of the charges, absolutely. Um, haul them over the coals, whack them with 10, 12, 15 point deduction. But yeah, don't take a Premier League title off them. That would be ridiculous. No, I'm, I completely agree with both points. I think my, my worry too, you know, I'm sure Paul, you've seen the news as well about Jermaine Defoe with this player agent news going to Spurs. And I think actually for me, my concern is that it's a bit like tit for tat. It now feels that we're going to be pulling up random moves and all these things going on. And actually it's like, where where does where do we have to draw the line? What year are we going to call it? Because actually one club could come out and say, well, in 1993, X move happened. And it's like, well, are we going to sanction that? How does that operate? Because it just becomes this ongoing snowball. So I think the Premier League also has to be quite careful with how they deal with this because it could just turn into he done it, she done it sort of thing. And then that that obviously is a is quite a big concern. Are you worried about any of your former transfers, Paul? <laughs> <laughs> uh, not that I'm aware of. But um, <laughs> fingers crossed anyway. But <laughs> listen, they won't be coming back for me anyway. I'll let too many go for the agent. Um, back to your point, Lewis. I mean, where, like what, what do you say? Where do you go with this? I mean, who's who's making these accusations? If you pull up and if you pull up enough carpets and look behind enough people's cupboards, you're going to find skeletons. You're going to find history. I mean, football is you know for previous years with agents, with you know with sponsors, with different people having input on transfers. Mm. I mean, if if you all of a sudden have a vendetta with somebody and you fall out with somebody and you know that there was a transfer or it was mismanaged in I don't know 1996. What do you do in 2000? Do you go back and you say, look, this happened, that happened? Are the Premier League going to open that case up? I mean, I, I, I've no answer to your question. Where does it stop? And where, you know, where is the line drawn in the sand? Do the Premier League go, look, that's it from now we, we go forward? I mean, how far back are they going with Chelsea? 14 years. You look at the Defoe transfer that they're investigating now. I mean, how long ago was that? Nothing. Um, when you were playing that thing, wasn't it? I was playing at that time, yeah. yeah, yeah. If, people, if people sling enough mud for the Premier League to listen... I mean, you know, what, what are we starting here? Yeah, absolutely. Wayne, it reminded me of that point you said as well about, you know, Todd Bowley and Chelsea coming out. It just it makes me think, I wonder if they go to court and they'll bring in a cardboard cutout of Roman Abramovich and say he's doing the talking, not us. So overall, I think it'd be good to summarise and say, really, do we think Everton have been hard done by here? And going forwards, you know, if we had to really make a call about Man City and Chelsea, how long do we think this is going to go on for? Um, I, I don't think... Everton have been hard done by. I think they they broke the rules. They were given warnings. They were found by a very by an independent commission um, after after hearing all the evidence before it. And if Everton made the grave error of um, putting that you know their sort of their chairman forward to represent them, that's their problem, isn't it? I mean, it's very 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 sad for, for Everton fans that they've you know they've got such a um, clownish figure sort of at the head of their club and not for much longer because obviously he's very close to selling it but um, the, the rules are there for a reason and I think most fans across the country are, like, are finally glad you know, they, they don't have anything against Everton Everton are a great club but they're finally glad um, that these clubs have been brought home to roost and they will want that same um, conduct repeated for Chelsea and Man City if they are found guilty. I think that's the important thing. I really think that's the important point that you made right at the end there. It's the continuity of it. If it's just Everton, absolutely they've been hard done to. You know, they've been kicked mm. with a 10-point penalty. But if this is the start of a precedence and when teams are found guilty, this is the procedure, this is what's going to happen. And these punishments are continued through regardless of what club you are, what financial power you've got and what you've what, what crime you've committed. 
we're not saying that Everton haven't committed a crime. They have. They've been hauled up in front of the jury very, very quickly, a lot quicker than others are that are already on trial, if you like. 10 points, yes, they'll feel it's harsh. I do think they'll get that reduced a little bit because that's generally what happens in appeals because all of a sudden the Premier League will look at that now and gone, well, if we've given Everton 10, hang on a minute, we're dealing with 100 and something charges with Man City. If we've given Everton 10, they could get 50, 60, 70 points on that basis. So I think that might be adjusted. But I, it's it's not harsh because they have been wrong, they, they, they've done wrong and they've been found guilty of doing wrong. But it's the precedence that that sets They've been done wrong if this isn't followed through in other cases and with other clubs. Interestingly, um, the Premier League were pushing for 12-point penalty for Everton. So um, the commission had come a bit lower than that in the end. But, that, you know, that shows the sort of appetite at the Premier League for strong punishments that send out the message not to break the rules. And, um, you know, that will make the the game and will make football and make the Premier League better run in the future if these punishments are meted out for um, clubs breaking the rules. And when do you think that's, a, there's, a, there's a hell of a lot to do with what's coming from the government, about the independent yeah. regulator? Because this has happened very quickly. Do you agree? Yeah, no, absolutely. I think, um, you know, the Premier League don't want to, they don't want an independent relegator. They want to be self-run, don't they? And they want to say, well, our house is in order. We we, we operate a, a financially um, well-run well-run league. And, you know, they're scared. They're scared, they're scared witless of, um, you know, an independent regulator sort of overseeing all those all those elements of the clubs. So I think that's real. And also there's been media pressure, isn't there, on about appointing regulator i think um you know gary neville's been one of those who's been really strongly behind that um and i think you know there's there's obviously political pressure on that side so i think the timing as always is very very significant for this um and you know this this is what makes it such a huge story and you know we'll probably be having a podcast quite a few podcasts in the future talking about <laughs> this um so it's a you know football finance subject where you know is as important as you know who's who should be playing up front and who should be um the hybrid fallback this weekend absolutely i mean we might be it might be 2027 and we're still going over this news it's been going on for about 20 what feels to be about 25 years if we move promoted from league two <laughs> exactly, exactly that. I might be playing by that point. And um, if we if we move swiftly forwards, we talk about another controversial topic that's happened this weekend about the Premier League voting ban. Wayne, can you kind of fill us in and give us a quick summary of what ha- what's happened between loans and multi club ownership? Yeah, the Premier League um, had a shareholders meeting yesterday, and they voted narrowly. Well, their motion to um, ban d- associated deals between Premier League clubs and their partner clubs um was narrowly defeated uh, 13 to 7 they needed 14 votes um for those deals to be outlawed um but they were not outlawed as a result of of the vote yesterday um i, I believe no was, was it 12 8 i think it was yeah so eight premier league clubs voted against them and unsurprisingly all eight or most of the eight have partner clubs um one or two there sort of um reasons are slightly mysterious um i think you have to dig a bit deeper to kind of find out why but i think the rest of them are pretty blindingly obvious there was a lot in the bottom half of the table mm. i mean that surprised me i mean sheffield united okay well i think there's some saudi arabian ownership yeah in sheffield united isn't there 
Um, yes. I think Everton were one of the clubs as well, weren't they? Burnley. There was a couple of clubs that I really raised my eyebrow and thought. Well, Bur- mm. Burnley, I think, are in talks. They they're in talks with um, a club, an overseas club, aren't they? About potentially buying buying another club. Their American owner is. So I think that that could be the reason for theirs. But then, then the Saudi league, you you question, would they let their players go because they're weakening their product, aren't they? They they want the, what they're trying to do is build a product, strengthen their product, and then all of a sudden, if these players are, are leaving, I mean, you look at the players that are there. This isn't just players that are the clubs that are co-owned, is it? This is anybody from the Saudi league can come to the Premier League. So yeah. you look at the type of players that are there now. I can't see the Saudi Pro League looking very fondly on this as a whole because mm-hmm. they're trying to build a league, trying to strengthen a league. All of a sudden, if they're loaning these top quality players back to the Premier League, not necessarily players that have played in the Premier League, other top quality players that are there, it weakens their product. So I think you'll get a bit of pushback from them as well. I mean, hypothetically, going into the January transfer window, Newcastle could start with Benzema up front, Kante in midfield. They could have Mane on the wing and Laporte in defence. I mean, that really just summarises this, doesn't it, as a whole. Now, Wayne, one of the big moves, of course, lots of people have been talking about Newcastle and the PIF ownership. Now, you know, we'd spoken for quite a while a few weeks back about Neves potentially going to Newcastle. David Ornstein said outright he won't be leaving Al-Halal in January. Do you expect him to go in the summer? Or actually, do you think there's now a tiny chance, given this ban has effectively not happened? he might go in January um I think well I know that Newcastle have been briefing the media that they won't sign Neves in January and um that's that information um would have been well sourced from that that particular journalist but I, I would very much expect him to to leave Al-Halal next summer because that's what he wants and um you know I've been told that he only went to Al-Halal for a short period and that his plan was always to then go to um, a major European club afterwards and it's just a temporary temporary move to um, fill, his, fill, fill his wallet and um, you know and then come back and, and play some proper football yeah I mean it's, it's just how it's how football works isn't it and yeah. you look at you look at the kind of agent he reps I think it's Georgie Mendes player isn't he um, it's you know New, Newcastle saying they won't be signing him in January and I think that that is legitimate, but doesn't mean he won't be signing him next summer. Doesn't mean he won't be joining Man City next summer or one of the other clubs who are interested in him. Um, I'd be very surprised if he's playing at Al Hilal next season. And Paul, do you think it was right for fans to single out Newcastle, despite the fact, as we've mentioned, there are lots of clubs with multi-club ownership? Because really, I think all fingers pointed towards them being the real culprits for this actually happening. What do you take on that? Well, it's the easy target, isn't it? I mean, you look at the, the Saudi Arabian input into Newcastle, you look at the huge financial wealth that the club has been blessed with the takeover and the link. I mean, you only have to look at Newcastle's awake at this year, the green and white, and it shows you the immediate link with, with Saudi Arabia and the Saudi Arabian Pro League. Um, it's horrible to look at, though, isn't it? Back, back <laughs> the other interesting, actually, just to say as well, the other interesting news is that apparently that from next season they've been added into, um, they've been added into the unique kits with Adidas. So they're going to have made kits specifically for them, and that joins the likes of Bayern Munich, Real Madrid, Juventus, Arsenal, you know, all, all the rest of the clubs on that list. I wonder how they will in. I wonder how they will incorporate Saudi Arabia into one of the three kits next season. There's got to be something in there again, surely. Shows how far they've come, though, that doesn't it? I mean, just a simple deal like that. I mean, you know, it's not a simple deal, it'd be a huge financial benefit to the club, but it shows in such a short space of time mm. where that football club has come. They're yeah. competing at the top table in the Champions League. You only have to look at their Champions League group and then compare to where they were playing 24, 36 months ago. You know, the, the scale of that, the, the rise of that football club is immense. Um, and the, the links with Saudi Arabia and people pointing the finger are always going to be there because of the ownership. 
But when you actually dig deeper and you look, you look at the minority shareholders in a lot of clubs. There's there's a lot of um, a lot of clubs that are multi that have multi ownerships. Absolutely, Wayne. Quite a few fans on on Twitter were calling out, you know, fans of, of said clubs that that have voted. Do you think it's fair for for other you know other clubs that aren't involved in a multi club ownership deal to feel quite disheartened by this, given actually the opportunity for someone like Newcastle to go and sign all of these top talents only on loan? Yeah, I mean, I think it's every club has an agenda, and you know they have voted for what is in their best interest on on the given day, and you know. Liverpool don't have a partner club, so they're obviously going to vote for the motion. Um, Arsenal are the same. Tottenham are the same. Tottenham apparently have held talks about a partner club in Europe, but that has never actually been been agreed. And it's something they might might very well look at doing in the future. So I think it very much depends on the club's agenda. And you know, I, I don't think there's, um, I, I don't think Liverpool are. A virtuous club at all. I don't think Man United are virtuous club. We you know we saw what they did with the sleep Super League, and that was that was obscene. Um, that was selfish, and you know that 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 league would have been you know horrendous for football. Um, so you know I don't you know they're certainly not masters of virtue by any means, but they just do what what suits them. Um, I don't like personally the. Um, associated party deals, whether that's um, player transfer or commercial deals, um, I think it's 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 too easy for those clubs. I think it only the only time it works is for a, a developing a young player. Then I think absolutely fine. If you've got a seventeen-year-old sending to a feeder club in Belgium or in a weaker league, and he gets experience, come back. To, I don't I don't have too much of an issue with that. But um, the example of Neves, I think that would have been. Awful for football. I think it would have been embarrassing, um, you know, to, to so blatantly join that wheat league and then go to um, a, a club owned by the same ownership a few months later, um, just so blatant, and w- would not have been a good look for Newcastle at all. Um, but with young players, I don't have too much of an issue with it. I mean, what do you guys think? Do you, do you see it differently? Yeah, well, this is not just link. This is not just the Saudi Pro League, is it? This is any league that the, they yeah. can look back and forth. You look at the way that Manchester United have used the Dutch league, for example. You yeah, know, to yeah. young players to loan players out. Um, but like these votes in general, you will find that football clubs will vote for what works for them. In yeah. very rare situations, there is football top table come together and vote for what's best for football, unless it's for sponsorship or television rights money, which benefits everybody. When, yeah. when there's a vote like that, you, you'll find the vote will be split as to what suits each individual club best. I mean, on a completely different scale of this, you look at non-league football, the amount of artificial surfaces that are in a non-league football that are able to be played in the Champions League, every year that goes to a vote, should we allow artificial surfaces in League Two? What do they do? They let the 92 league clubs vote who play on grass. So no, of course we don't. It doesn't suit us. Absolutely <laughs> not. Same thing, but completely different scales. And yeah. that's, that's the same thing with this. I think you're right, but I think in the same way, actually, the only time really that we've seen quite a few of what you'd regard as, you know, the top six in inverted commas unite was when the Super League happened, when actually teams came together. And then obviously the backlash from the fans that meant that the fans revolted and the clubs backed down. But 
I mean, the, the question, Wayne, because you kind of hinted there that you don't mind it necessarily if it's for, I think, for strategic purposes that are beneficial for the clubs. Do you expect the ban to ever come into place? Because it sounds like that people eventually might push for it in a different way. Or do you think actually it's going to just come back around that there's going to be backlash from the likes of Man City, Newcastle and so on, who are just going to put their foot down and say, we don't want this to come indefinitely? I think there will be another vote in it in the future. Because actually this vote yesterday was just for a temporary ban in January wasn't it so I think it will be on the agenda in the future and you know those clubs who voted one way yesterday might very well vote in a different way next time and as you know you know as we've just said it will be whatever suits them on the day and whatever suits their agenda at the time um, and then the fans will kind of follow in response to that in terms of you know their level of outrage or um, or you know support so um, it's not something that's going to go away I think when you've got Man City have got you know what 13 clubs around the world you know it's, it's 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 a huge issue the premier league is obviously by far the biggest league in the world and the wealth of these clubs is um absolutely enormous you could question it though you look at the the ones that the teams at the, the the bottom of the table whether it's an actual business decision or a football decision because if you ask the football managers to vote for it at the bottom of the league, the likes of the Sheffield United manager, Paul Heckenbottom, Vincent Company at Burnley, would they have the same opinion of the decision that their board yeah. or ownership have taken? Mm. I mean, it's it's almost like the turkeys coming together and voting for Christmas early. It's, yeah. it, it's, do you know what I mean? Because would, I they, the manager, would they have asked the manager, Paul? Probably not. They wouldn't have, would probably they? Not. No, that's what I'm saying. It's, it's probably a decision that's taken at ownership and boardroom level for... Mm partnerships for deals for relationships yeah. rather than actually what's good for their team in the Premier League this season I mean yeah. one thing that just reminds me of is when Manchester City loney Frank Lampard scored against Chelsea in still one of the weirdest moves I think has ever happened in the Premier League has seen and that goal I will never forget simply because of the backlash that both City and Chelsea fans faced from it really strange but again I guess it remains to be seen what happens with that and whether it does come into come into place I'm sure it will eventually like Wayne you've hinted at it's just a matter of when rather than if if we move on from talking about loan deals and talk about Spurs now Scoop King Peter Rourke said that he's written a piece a few days ago. Sounds like Spurs are unlikely to be moving for an out-and-out -out number nine in January. Paul, are you are you surprised by this, really? What was your take on that? Um, at the beginning of the season, I would have expected him to go out and look for a nine. But you look at the way they've started and you look at the way that Sonny's carried the can and the goals that he scored. Um, and in all honesty, a wide player is going to be cheaper than an out-and-out -out goal scorer, isn't he? And yeah. what out-and-out what -out goal scorer are you going to get? Ange Postacoglu... To his, to his own detriment, has proved that he can work with the squad that he's got. So when he goes knocking on the chairman's door and says, I want 80 million for a striker, he'll turn around and go, why have you been top of the league all season? You know, we, we can give you, we can facilitate you a certain amount of, of budget. But when you look at the strikers that are out there, are they going to go and pay the money for Osserman? They're, they're not. That's not what Tottenham do. The, the type of striker that's out there, the Harry Kanes of this world, they've sold Harry Kane. Who are they going to go and get? Who are they going to buy that's going to have that much of an impact on that side? And with Sun proving that he can play as a nine, his best option is probably an improved Richarlison, if you like, a better version of Richarlison. Don't start about Richarlison with Wayne, because because will <laughs> we'll get a full we'll get a full deep dive. If we mention quickly there, Paul, you've you've said about Human Son. Obviously, he's been unbelievable, and I think actually maybe contrary to opinion, he actually arguably could be playing better without Harry Kane in the side up front. Now, the only thing to consider is that when South Korea goes to the Asia Cup in January, provided that South Korea do well and go far in the tournament, he's likely to miss Man United away, Brentford at home, Everton away, and Brighton at home. There are some huge, there's four huge games there. Do you think? 
Ange will be considering that going into January at all, as we mentioned, of course, looking at a wide man, but specifically for goals, because actually aside Son really being the main man for, for Spurs this season, where are those goals going to come from? Well, you look at Spurs in recent history, when they've had these problems in, in January, they've they've plugged holes, they've gone to take players on loan, you know, in going years back, like to Ryan Nelson when they had problems at centre-half, they bring players in on loan, strikers as well. They've, they've done it before with, with other strikers, rather than actually going and buying a player that the manager wants and the player that will make a difference, they've brought in loans. And this is a big test for the Spurs board now. Andrew's done it. He's proved that he can do it on the pitch and he's, he's brought the results that the club want. He now turns around to the chairman and goes, OK, I need a little bit of help now. Romero, you can't rely on him. He's going to get suspended at some point, as he's proven already. The partnership with him and Van der Ven has been excellent, but Van der Ven is now out till the new year. Madison's out. I mean, it's been a disastrous two weeks for Spurs, losing Udogi, Romero, Van der Ven and Madison, your four best and most influential players of the season for, for a, a, a decent length of time. So you, you go back into that squad, you look at the squad, is the squad big enough, is it deep enough? It's not. If they were competing in European football every week, they'd be in trouble. So yeah. the manager now has to go into the market in January and he's looking for his chairman and his board to back him. I mean, one thing they have in their favour is Fabio Paratici is, you know, still pulling the recruitment, recruitment strings, even though he has got a worldwide football ban, but he's still very influential. He's at the games. Um, he's got Levy's ear. I think that's really important. And he has done some really smart January deals for the club. Kulisevsky, alone to buy initially. Benton Kerr, he was at his fingerprints all over that. So I think he will have the trust of the chairman. He'll have the tr trust of the board. And I think um, he's already got kind of th um, a three-player transfer list for the wide attacking position. One of them is um, Samuel Ling Jr., who was um, at Chelsea, now at Juventus. He, he's one of the three on the target list. So sends forwards off the agenda for Tottenham um, as as Peter wrote, and it's all about it's all about a wide attacker. And I think I would expect them to bring one in, maybe on a loan, maybe on a loan to buy. Um, but I'd expect that deal to happen um, because centre forwards they who might be good enough are too expensive for Tottenham. And I was going to say, Paul, you're actually spot on, of course, with your Romero prediction. So you definitely get ten points for the uh, for the for the red card call that, and, and a lot of respect from this podcast. As well. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely, absolutely spot on. If we move forwards and we talk about games over the weekend, I think really all eyes are on that twelve thirty kickoff on Saturday, Man City versus Liverpool, arguably game of the weekend. I mean. What are the, are the early thoughts generally? Wayne, Paul, what, what are you thinking? Last time Man City faced Liverpool at lunchtime, Liverpool lost 4-1 at the Etihad. Yeah, I mean, my, my, my thoughts are the ramifications from the South American matches nearly hours this morning are, are huge. Liverpool had, four, yeah, Liverpool had four players involved um, who would be expected to be in the starting eleven: McAllister, Allison, Darwin Nunes and Luis Diaz. Liverpool have apparently um, chartered a private jet to bring those four players home because Klopp and the coaching staff want them in training tomorrow in full readiness and preparation for Saturday. They don't want them to have to miss out training tomorrow and then just train on Friday ahead of Saturday lunchtime. So I think those four players and their ability and sort of physical readiness for Saturday is really, really important, I think. Man City have only got Alvarez from the South American contingent who's likely to start. Liverpool got four. I think that's absolutely huge. I mean, I would say Alisson is probably Liverpool's second most important player after Salah and Nunes is probably in the top three or 
three or four based on how he's been playing this season. So um, that that is absolutely key. Harlan's injury, I'm putting inverted commas, finger marks, people who are just listening to this. Um, and, you know, apparently he's going to be fine for Saturday and I would expect him to be fine. Um, pulling, he pulled out of Scotland, Norway Scotland game the other night. Um, I think his physical readiness is obviously absolutely vital for the outcome as well. But um, it, it suits Man City definitely the twelve thirty kickoff much more than Liverpool. Absolutely, Paul. Do you do you think? Oh, sorry, go on, Paul. You say. I was I was going to pick up on Wayne's point then about Haaland pulling out. Call me a conspiracy theorist. Mm. So did Rodri, and so did John Stones. Yeah. Manchester yeah. City players pulled out of international games that were dead rubbers, if you like. Yeah. Rodri pulling out the Spain squad, John Stones out the England squad. As we know, things been out for a while though. But Rodri pulling out as well. It'll be interesting to see whether he's fit to play. There I mean, that's, that stinks a bit, doesn't it? I mean, it's happened for, for forever, isn't it? I mean, Man United players always used to pull out with mysterious injuries for friendly matches, didn't they? With Paul Scholes, etc. Roy Keane. I mean, it's, it's not right. Is it? I mean, no. obviously Brazil and Argentina, the South American players are in very big qualifying groups. There's so many fixtures in those groups, whereas the European qualifying is nowhere near as competitive. I mean, the the level of some of the matches um, is embarrassing, isn't it? And I think, you know, no wonder Rick Cristiano Ronaldo scored 128 international goals. I think, Paul, you could probably strap your boots on and, and go back in goal. Can you have some of these? Some of these I, I been in goal for Gibraltar the other night, though, put it that way. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah, goodness gracious! Yeah, only fourteen conceded. Maybe I'm... France at home. I think that'd be, <laughs> you'd be all right there. You'd be better. Talking of things that are a bit sort of dodgy, I think the other thing that's worth talking about is Klopp being annoyed about the twelve thirty kickoff. Now, this will be the thirteenth game following the international break that Liverpool are going to be playing at lunchtime. That's seven more than Spurs and Chelsea sit in second. Does Klopp have the right to be annoyed at that? Is it? It must be quite infuriating for him. Time after time, Liverpool get put down for half twelve. It's just, it must be really infuriating. Yeah, one hundred percent. Listen, I, you sit and listen to managers, and you, you, they moan about fixture pileups, fixture congestion. We're playing too many games. We're, we've got too many fixtures. That's rubbish. They know what they sign up for at the beginning of the season. If they want to be successful, they want to play in the Champions League and they want to be at the top echelons of English football, you're going to play two games a week, regardless. You're going to travel and you're going to be playing that amount of fixtures. But when you're given the 12 o'clocks every week, that's when I can understand managers' frustrations. I right, But the flip side of that, the sponsorship deals, the TV revenue, what happens is TV rights sort out what they're doing, who's getting what game, and basically, they get a pick. So they pay pay for certain weekends. Mm-hmm. And on that weekend, a TV company will have the pick of which game they want for their TV slot. And it's just very, very unfortunate that Liverpool are a good watch. They've got a huge TV audience around the world. So I don't know which TV company is off the top of my head that have got to get 12.30 again this it's, weekend. It's Sky. It's Sky this Saturday. The Sky have got... They've, so they get the bunch of fixtures. They look at the weekend... And I mean, there's only one fixture that you're going to pick off, off you know, yeah. off, the, off the paper this weekend, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. So they've, I mean, so they've got first pick and they go Liverpool. I can completely understand it. How you regulate that, there, there's got to be some kind of fair, I, I don't know now how, how you do it, but if you have one, you can't have the following three weeks or whatever it is. But the, the money and the revenue that these TV companies pay, they want the best game on their channel for their weekend that they've paid for. And that's how it happens. But from a manager's point of view, I can more than understand it. Yeah, and, yeah. And, I mean, for all his kind of megawatt smiles and everything else, Klopp can be as sour as the next manager when it suits him, but I'm 100% with Klopp and Paul on this completely. I think it's completely unfair. 13 times Liverpool have had that 12-30 slot in the last few years. Um, third international break in a row 
the season after Wolves and Everton matches previously. I mean, there is a few, you know, solid reasons for it. Man City playing the Champions League on Tuesday, so the um, the broadcasters had to work around that fixture. The match couldn't be played on Sunday. You know, Sky's choice would have been 4pm or 4.30pm on Sunday. And um, what what Liverpool would have wanted would have been 530 slot on Saturday, but um, the police said, no, that couldn't happen um, because they're, they're fearful of clashes between fans at that time on a Saturday. Um, even, I mean, that doesn't quite add up to me because um, how is Sunday at 4.30 all right, but not Saturday 5.30? That just seem, seems a bit weird. Um, I, don't, I, don't, I don't quite get that. Um, in terms of fairness, completely unfair. For Liverpool, why are they why are they getting the same? And their fans are absolutely outraged, and they have every right to be in this one. I think loads of loads of times you get kind of a meltdown from supporters groups over things that aren't that serious at all. But this this does seem wrong. It does seem um, very unfairly skewed against Liverpool. And when you throw in the fact they've got those four South American players, yes, Liverpool chose to buy those players. Yes, they chose to buy McAllister in the summer to add to their already strong contingent but you know I'm, I'm certainly not holding that against them um there's no way they should keep playing the 1230s every time in terms of the broadcasters um the tnt sports have been having the 1230 slot on saturday but sky have got first pick for this weekend and my understanding is they agreed with tnt sport you know they, they said they wanted the liverpool man city, man city match which you totally understand and they agreed with tnt sports they'll take that 12 30 slot on saturday um it kind of ruins it doesn't it because um you know these games are much better i think with the lights on with later in the day um either night match or early evening kickoff late afternoon i think lunchtime does kind of spoil the spectacle slight slightly spoils the intensity and I mean any Liverpool fan who watched them play in the first half against Wolves when they're absolutely abysmal, um, much better in second half. Um, but I think Lewis, you 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 wear the red red and white scarf sometimes, don't you? I think you you remember that that first half performance is horrible, and I think Liverpool fans will be worried about Saturday for sure. Mm. Um, uh- we are all all rivalry aside, and, and from a neutral point of view, I think the Etihad is somewhere that Liverpool go, and they never ever play well. I never, I think, as as Liverpool fans feel generally, the Etihad is not somewhere that Liverpool go to and feel very confident. I, I slightly slightly agree. I thought last season in the League Cup, straight after the World oh, Cup, yeah. I thought Liverpool played well in that game, even though they lost it, and it was an absolutely brilliant game. And Liverpool didn't play well for about three months after that match, but I thought <laughs> that performance was a good one, um, and. And then they completely um, capsized after, for the following months. But um, yeah, apart from that, they've been. And I think was it the season Firmino scored the winner in the two one. Um, yeah. That was a, that was quite a while way back now. Mm. Paul, me, just, oh, go on, what you say? The original point about the early kickoffs on a Saturday. I think we, as a Premier League and this country, listen. I've, from a neutral point of view, now you look at all of our teams in the Champions League. I, regardless of who your affiliation is, I, I like to see British clubs do well in the Champions League, regardless of who it is at times. I think we're very, very guilty of not helping our teams in the Champions League re- re-kick-off times. You look at other countries across Europe with the Champions League, they will postpone games, they will delay games, they will knock games back a day to help their teams that are in the Champions League. There is none of that from the Premier League, nothing. Regardless of whether you play a Tuesday, Wednesday, or how far you travel, if you're down to play at 12.30 on a Saturday, you play. And as a Premier League, I think we can do more. Well, I mean, what would your suggestion be, though, Paul, for this 
match. I mean, with Man City scheduled to play Tuesday evening in the Champions League, when when what should the Premier League be doing? Well, it's, it's between the TV right, the company TV rights, and the Premier League. I mean, it's it's huge, a huge difference. As silly as it sounds, preparation time, whether it's a twelve thirty on a Saturday or a four thirty five o'clock on a Saturday, makes such a difference for a manager. Mm. You touched on it there when you talked. We used to hate playing. You ask any footballer, the majority, ninety five percent, will hate playing at twelve o'clock yeah. on, on a Saturday. Is, is that because of the the nutrition side? You got to get up all, at a different time to eat. Build up. You have your own general build up, and mm. there's normally at this time of year, it's not a great day. It's cold. There's a low sun that sits over the yeah. over the top of the stand. It affects the game. The yeah. fans are not quite up for it because they just got out of bed, had the breakfast, come into the stadium. It's not the same atmosphere. And you know, we talk about, oh, it's, it's a great game under lights on a night time. There's something about a little bit later in the day or a night time yeah. under lights. Mm-hmm. And very, very rarely do you get a good game at that time of day, you know, a, a, an early kickoff. As players players have the routine, you get up for breakfast at 8.30 and there's some of the lads trying to stuff spaghetti bolognese down the neck. There's some <laughs> lads that are not, not having anything, just a coffee. Surely that time of day. Yeah, they're, they're just not easy games to prepare for. They're, they're really not. Um, and coming off the back of the international games, if if Jurgen Klopp gets his players back, what we do at one on Thursday, I mean he's got a Thursday. They'll be doing a recovery day because the jet lag that comes into play as well. Mm-hmm. So he'll have his players back after two weeks away. He'll have them back on a Thursday where they'll have a recovery session in the gym. They'll have their ice baths. They'll have the massage. They'll come in Friday to prepare for a game Saturday. So they'll come home Thursday, home on Thursday night, Friday night. Sorry, Friday at the training ground in the morning. And then Friday night, Jurgen Klopp will take them away to a hotel again. So almost <laughs> off an aeroplane, training ground, straight back to a hotel. And then two or three hours later, you're playing a game. The preparation is tough. But as, as, as a Premier League and a TV company, as the deal happens with the Champions League that City are playing on on Tuesday, just giving them an extra few hours in the day does, believe it or not, make a difference. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this whole chat just reminds me of when Liverpool were away for the uh, the Club World Cup and we played Villa in the Cup and we put out the under-18s and we lost 5-0 at Villa Park. And it's that sort of thing that's just, it's so difficult to balance how, you know, well, how actually... Actually, As soon as you said his red and white allegiance, he's now referring to them as we. I know, we. As always. I won't say any more than that. And <laughs> one other thing, Paul, to mention, I think that's, that's quite interesting. And again, I think this is interesting from a player's point of view, is that Chris Kavanagh's the referee, you know, he's actually from a, a town 20 minutes down the road from the Etihad. Some fans online were joking and saying Chris Cavan is refereeing the game. Noel Gallagher's in charge of VAR. Did players ever did players ever take notice? As long as it's not Liam in charge of VAR. <laughs> it's Noel instead. Did, Paul, Can't did they do any worse, let's be honest. <laughs> did, did players take notice, Paul, of, of, of where referees were from or a potential any affiliations with clubs? No, never. Um, personal. Um, differences with referees, certainly. You know, you'd get certain referees you, you, as a player that you'd have had a run-in with the past or he would have made a decision or you'd have had a coming together and, and you, you didn't get on with him or whatever else. And you'd be like, oh, no, he's reffing today. We're in for one today type thing. And there's other players that would get on with them. I don't think as as a team, I mean, maybe if you had him a, a week before or two weeks previous uh, as a collective and they were terrible, you you kind of get into his ribs on the pitch. By the way, you owe us one. You remember that a couple of weeks ago? You, you owe us mm. one today, and you you plant that seed in the referee's head, and subconsciously they're human beings. And all of a sudden, if, if you're on the pitch thinking, "Yeah, I did wrong a couple of weeks ago," you might make a decision, or something might just trigger in the game that that goes your your way. Do you know what I mean? In, in your favour. But as as a collective, I don't think there's any kind of feeling towards players and referees having specific vendettas. 
Okay, well, that, that summarizes that nicely. It is what you hear, guys, on the inside track of this podcast, all the inside information from everyone in the game of football. We're going to do a quick, fun game, I think, to wrap up a combined Liverpool and Manchester City 11 for the weekend. Now, a couple of rules to state before we get going. We're going to go for a 4 2 3 1 formation because I think Liverpool have been playing really a 4 3 3. Oh, I mean, you can't tell us that. I've got it all written down. <laughs> oh, I've, got, I know, yeah, right. I've, gone, I've gone 3 4 3. You, know, so <laughs> three, you, three. Didn't, tell us, you didn't tell us the the rules here. That was the rules. Oh no, oh, I'm sorry. Well, you we might have to do some slight adaptations as we as we go. Oh, roughly sorry, De Bruyne at left back. <laughs> That's yeah. fine then. Yeah, exactly that. Um, I think roughly because of how different both squads have been playing, the plan was going to be 4-2-3-1. Generally, City, I know City have been playing that really strange 3-2-4-1-esque yeah. formation. But I think we, of course, before the time at recording, we're talking about team news. The players selected that I have gone for that we're going to be talking about are going to be those that have featured the most this season for each club because I think otherwise it gets too complicated with injuries and all the rest of it the only player I will say we're picking 10 players because like Wayne joked about the other week Liverpool have 27 number eights but no number six so I think Rodri picks himself that isn't up for that isn't up for debate although Paul is Paul's Paul the fact Paul what's happening I don't know somebody just walked in the house oh okay there well, you as, go. Long as, it, as long as it's not Rodri it's right, it's and... safe. <laughs> Rodri's there to pick himself. So if we if we start with, I mean, Paul, we've got to go to you first in goal between the sticks. Are we going Edison or Allison? Really tough call. You've got two of the best in the league. Um, the, the goalkeeper's position and the role has changed. The, the definition of of what's required. One of these two for me does both. The 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 the, the, the remit for a goalkeeper is keep the ball out the net, dominate your box, make saves, catch crosses, and be a goalkeeper first of all. And then if you're able to do the rest, it's it, it, that's that's the modern day goalkeeper. And that's Alisson for me. He's the best at he's the best at it. I think he's the all-round best goalkeeper, but I think he can do the other bits as well. So Alisson. Okay. Wayne, what are your thoughts? Um, I won't go as far as to say Edison can't lace Alisson's boots, but um Alisson hundred percent for me. He is the better goalkeeper. He's the best in the Premier League, if not the world. Um, he can do everything. One-on-ones, he wins more than he loses. Strikers are terrified of going one-on-one against him because he always wins. He's in. Yeah, I'm putting on my neutral cap for this, by the way. I'm going to put in the fellow Premier League goalkeeper who scored as well. I'm going Alisson. I think that wraps that up perfectly. If we're looking at right-back, this is quite difficult because it depends on how you view how this team is going to play. Walker or Trent? Paul, where do you sit with that? There's only one, Carl Walker. I mean, Trent's defensively, you know, we know his, his susceptibility defensively. And I think he's he's improved hugely in the last 12 months. And he's improved because he's been playing higher up the field. He's been playing in that hybrid role. He's been causing problems going forward with his assists, with his quality in the final thirds that we know he's got. Defensively, I mean, his susceptibility is still there. Carl Walker, for me, gets the nod. OK, I'm, I'm not going for either of them um, because even though Lewis has shoehorned me into a formation that I don't want... <laughs> Um, I'm going to go for John Stones at right back. And then um, when Lewis's back is turned, I'm going to push him forward into a hybrid role in the field. Um, so, so, he's, <laughs> so he's in he's in my he's in my starting eleven above Trent and Walker. Okay, so pe- so there we go. So we're going to have to call Wayne Wayne Guardiola because he's going for the uh, the the hybrid formation as it's known. Well, one thing that won't be argued generally is centre backs. Now, looking at right centre back, I think this really might not be a debate. Wayne, I'll start with you. Would you go for Diaz or Matip? Um, I'm going for what about Canate, Lewis? He, well, he, oh, going off want, minutes, doesn't get doesn't even get a look in anymore. Off, off minutes, Wayne. It is. Right, it was. It was. John. Okay. It was, okay. Um, so yeah, I mean. 
Diaz for me above Canart, uh, Matip and Canate and Joe Gomez. Um, he's um, super smooth centre-back, um, makes very few mistakes. He was rattled a bit against Chelsea, I thought, a couple of weeks ago, but very rarely gets rattled. Very well protected, obviously, by Rodri and co in front of him. Um, but he's he's super solid um, and he's brilliant on the ball. So, yeah, he's in for me. And, Paul, who would you go for, Diaz or, or Matip, to start that right centre-back position? I agree with all the above. Diaz and Matip is not even a conversation. How, how many years now have we talked about Liverpool's back four and it's Virgil van Dijk and who? And they haven't got that and who? If they had Diaz, they'd have a decent back four. Diaz. And then I think you know where I'm going with the next one. Diaz and van Dijk. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. I didn't even get to answer, Wayne. Is that the, is that the conclusion? Kanji doesn't even come into the question? Kanji... Uh, Guardiola or, or um, Nathan Ake. Yeah, no, Van Dijk's number one. He's improved this season, I think, compared to last season. Um, I was a bit worried his legs had gone. Um, certainly early in the season and second half of last season, I thought he's, that was his worst time as a Liverpool player. Um, but he's been really back to his Rolls-Royce best the last two months. Um, so he's in, definitely. I think one of the harder positions now, this is something that I had to spend some time really dwelling over, was at left-back with Guardiola or Robertson. Actually quite tight, I'd say. Paul, who would you go for in that, In that again, if you want to call it a hybrid role, attacking, however you want to refer to it? can't believe you had to debate over that with your red and white hat on. That's probably one of the easiest ones for me. Guardiola is an outstanding young talent, and I think I prefer him playing at centre-half. He hasn't had his opportunity to play there yet. He's a very good left-back. But the impact that Robertson has for Liverpool, um, you see when he's missing and Simicast plays there, it's not the same. The assist that he has, his power going forward, his defensive capabilities, his leadership qualities. I mean, I'm amazed that you even had to think that Robertson, hands down. Oh, look, neutral caps on currently as it stands. I can't I can't have any affiliation. Wait, who would you go for at that position? Um, I'm, I'm going to disagree with Paul. I'm going to go for Gvardiol ahead of Robertson. Um, I agree that Robson is a more orthodox left back, but I think Bidel's a superior player. I think he'll be a superior player in the future. I think he's going to be um, absolutely incredible at Man City when he gets completely accustomed to um, how Guardiola wants to use him. He's going to be a true superstar. And Robson, um, mighty, mighty fine player as he is. Um, he is also um, technically one of the weaker players in the Liverpool team, I would say, and almost limited in that that regard, so um, Gvardia has no limitations. He's he 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 gets in for me. Okay, because then because Wayne threw in the curveball of John Stones at right back, we'll stick Walker at right back and we'll go for oh. Robbo at left back. There we go. Oh That's my goodness. What... Have I got any of my picks? Yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, Van Dyke. Yeah, Andy. Yeah, Van Dyke. Yeah, yeah, you both do it, Van Dyke. Yeah, and the goalkeeper. Right, Roger. Again, Rodri. We don't need to debate that. That's as simple as that. The next central midfielder, I think. Again, this is this is difficult, Paul. This is definitely certainly one that we could argue about. Is Sabozlai versus Kovacic? Where where's the general feeling on that? Who would you rather start in that box to box role? I think Sabozlai for me. I think he's been an outstanding signing. I think Liverpool. They had problems in the midfield at the start of this season. You looked where the recruitment would be. They obviously lost James Milner and Henderson, which had a big impact on their squad. They needed replacing, they were moving on, and it was where do they go, what do they spend? And I think Sabozlai has come in there, um, for want of a better phrase, he's hit the ground running, and I think he's getting better week on, week off. Um, Kovacic, he looks a completely different player to the one he did at Chelsea. Um, he looks the level, the international level that you would expect, but I think Sabozlai has had that big an impact this year, watching Liverpool week in, as you do. I would suspect you might agree that he's probably had as nearly as big an impact as James Madison has. 
Yeah, I, I do. I think he's been bigger, he's been bigger impact. Um, yeah, Shabazz life for me, both Kovacic, um, signing of the signing of the season, signing of the decade, signing of the century for Liverpool, best midfielder at Liverpool since Gerrard. Um, brilliant on the ball. I think he's. We, I think Liverpool fans have barely seen how good this player will eventually become. Um, he's already shown him play different positions. He's played out wide, played out r- wide right. He's played um, further further up the pitch. Played just in front of defence when they had nine players against Tottenham. He is incredible. He's got everything. He will score loads of goals for Liverpool, and he will be the most influential player in the team very very soon, in my opinion. He's he's brilliant. That's a huge call. I mean, I think my general opinion is he's absolutely going to be a top player. But I think, unfortunately, at the moment for Liverpool, with him, because they don't have that six, you know, McAllister, Sabozlai, they're having to fill in this role where actually they're not suited to play. He should be driving forwards. He should have the ball pushing up. And actually, you see him quite often sitting quite deep because we don't, you know, Liverpool don't have that midfield to sit in and do the role that Rodri's doing. So I think... and that's they, should have, they should have spent the money for Lavia. I mean, yeah, Casada didn't want to go, but should have spent it for Lavia because they spent months negotiating that anyway. That's another mm. another story. But yeah, I mean, 27 number eights, Lewis, that's... that's <laughs> I think it's absolutely spot on. If we talk about left wing, now this is one absolutely that's going to be difficult. Phil Foden or Luis Diaz? Oh, n- neither. Um, neither? Because... No, no, no. Right, okay. There's really good reason for this because um, I'm, I've got Nunes for left, for left wing because only one person can be sent forward. Um, and that is no mystery. So Nunes has to be in this team, Lewis. Um, right, here's here's my reasons. He is, um, you know, the most unpredictable player in the Premier League, but unpredictable forward. City will be worried about him on Saturday, even jet lagged, and who knows, he might not even be in starting eleven if he comes back slightly, slightly exhausted. But um, he causes chaos. And defenders are terrified of him. Yes, um, you would not put your mortgage on him finishing from six yards with no goalkeeper in front of him or any defenders, but um, he is one hell of a handful. Um, he has to be in the starting eleven. Um, that's my, that's my passionate proposal. Anyway. There we go. That is the that's the one big call that you've made. Absolutely. Okay, Paul. What do you reckon? Would you go with? Would you back Nunes as well? Are we going to have to have a bit of a discussion about this then? I'm going against both of you. I've got any of your three in my team. I've got Bernardo Silva there. You can't not, you can't leave out the little magician. I mean, the, how good he is with his ball rotation. And you're going to need a bit of bit of creativity in the final third, somebody to unlock the door with all the firepower you've got. Bernardo Silva. Oh, this doesn't make my job easy, does it? That's really not fair. Um, I think. Well, this now this gets really hard. Uh, you know what we'll do? We'll hold fire on left wing, and I will. Okay. I will we'll, uh, we'll come. We'll come back if we go to the if we come to the right wing, Paul. Because my proposition at right wing was going to be Mo Salah or Bernardo Silva. Although there might not be much of a debate, but what's the general opinion? Yeah, it's Mo Salah. I've got Bernardo Silva one side and Mo Salah the other side. Okay, I mean, you, I'd like to hear both of you come up with an argument against those two. <laughs> um, no argument against Salah. Um, no. He's he's still Liverpool's best player, and. Um, and he will be the one they look to to um, turn, t- take City apart. Last season, mm-hmm. his performance at Anfield against Man City was absolutely sensational, and he tro- showed Erling Haaland what a world superstar looks like. So he he has to be in the team. Yeah, and number ten, and again, this is slightly controversial because, of course, he hasn't been playing there this season. But for what we've seen, the heights at Brighton, would you go McAllister or Alvarez playing in that central attacking position? Mate, I'm putting Kevin De Bruyne there on crutches. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> 
<laughs> I was waiting for that. Oh, oh. no. <laughs> I've, I've got Bernardo Silva there because um, Lewis oh. didn't explain these rules. Okay. But, um, yeah, I'd, I would go to Brian if he was fit, obviously. But, um, yeah, but I, I'd Bernardo Silva there. Um, definitely not McAllister. Um, no. I, don't think he's, I don't think he's been particularly good for Liverpool this season. And I think um, if Klopp hadn't have you know, find a way into the team for him with this number six role. I think he'd be struggling to get in that starting eleven, to be honest. I think he's um, been fun defensively, hasn't he, McAllister? I think yeah. players are running off him. Um going forward, I don't think he's in question, but I think defensively, I think he's there's there's a few questions over him. He's not he's not quite mobile enough, is he? He's not quite mm. quick enough. Um and he's yeah, his skills aren't suited to that position. I think I mean on the ball, I don't think he's been that great, to be honest. I think his distribution's been wonky and he's um you know, lost a lot of a lot of ball retention as you know, a lot of moves have fallen apart at his feet. Um, but I'm sure we'll get better. So we're gonna I'll put Kevin De Bruyne with an asterisk for when he's then fit instead of being on crutches, although Paul did did suggest. Now that of course, as I think we've all agreed again, that doesn't need to be a debate. Erling Haaland's going up front, that's not even a question. Um it's that left wing position that I don't like. That's a really that's Sean Gotter up front. How, how many how many um Liverpool players have we got in this combat in this Currently, we've got so we've got Allison, Virgil Van Dijk, Robertson, Sabozlai, and Mo Salah. So as it stands, that's one, four, but five. We've got five City currently and five Liverpool. And we've got to work out that left wing position. Okay. Now, Paul, my only proposition to you about Bernardo Silva at left wing is naturally as a left-footed player, he doesn't always play on the left because he's not as comfortable as as running down the byline and swinging it in the box. He's more comfortable cutting in from the right. That's my only reservation. Whereas Mister Dangerous Darwin Nunez seems to be he likes that left wing. Um, but again, I don't. I don't need to have the final say. General opinion: Would you rather have Nunez starting in a Champions League final on the wing, or would you rather someone more technical and gifted in terms yeah. of a more, uh, I think, lo- lower central gravity? Bernardo. Let, me, let me flip your argument. Would you play Haaland left wing? No, no, no. There you go. He's a number nine. Nunez is a number nine, isn't he? Mm, there's the answer. Although, then we'd be throwing a dimensional Paul. You can play anywhere. That's <laughs> it. Or, or, or you can actually have a proper chat with him and play whatever formation you want, and you can play both of them, him and Haaland up front together. But can you have a proper chat with Darwin Nunes? I would like, <laughs> I would like to know the answer to that question. Um, Marcelo Bielsa and Jurgen Klopp would probably give a very interesting private answer to that, wouldn't they? What? Okay. What about this? This is a di- okay. Now I've got a whole different proposition in here because one player we haven't mentioned at all that I think on again, I, I hate saying that on his day talk, but Jeremy Doku this season when he's turns it on, surely he would go into that left wing spot. If we're talking about players at the peak of their form, he's got to be in that he's got to be in that left wing spot maybe. He's not getting ahead of Bernardo Silva for me. He's the first one off the bench. He has such an impact. His pace is direct. He's wow. so good off the bench and I think there's a little bit of his probably the impact that he would have coming from the bench is to his detriment at times. For me Bernardo Silva would start and I'd put Doku on the bench, but he is going to be one hell of a player Doku. Okay, so actually, okay, with with Paul's passion for Bernardo Silva, definitely, definitely wants the midfield maestro in there. We'll, we'll stick Silva in there. So our team, as selected, our starting eleven. The last question, though, who's in charge? Jurgen Klopp or Pep Guardiola? If it's Anfield, it's Klopp. If it's Etihad, <laughs> okay. Paul, what, what do you reckon? Um, Jurgen Klopp. Okay, we'll go. Uh, we'll we'll go with Klopp then. There's the answer. Um, so to summarise that team, then we've got Allison in goal, 
Defensive, Walker, Diaz, Virgil van Dijk, Robertson. The two midfielders, we've got Sabozlai and Rodri. And then going forward, Mo Salah on the right, Bernardo Silva on the left, Kevin De Bruyne sitting just behind the main man, number nine, Erling Haaland. That is a great team. That was absolutely brilliant. So much gossip and exclusive news across a range of subjects today. Thanks very much to both Wayne Beasy and Paul Robinson for their expert analysis and detail on all the stories, as well as our combined collective Manchester City and Liverpool starting 11. If you have enjoyed this podcast episode, please give it a share on social media wherever you can. And any clips you see on YouTube, make sure to give us a like and a comment, as well as subscribing to the channel. I'm Lewis Piers, and we'll speak to you all on the next show here on the Inside Track.